0: Heavenly Father, thank You. Thank You for the gift of Yourself given to us in Jesus Christ. We do, Lord, express the faith uh, to believe that it is only through Jesus that we can know You. It is only through Jesus that we are reconciled to You. It is only through Jesus that we are saved. It is only through Jesus that we can experience eternal life. Lord, write not just the words, Uh, of that on our heart but the truth of it lord father i pray that you would draw near to us as we draw near to you this morning that we would leave this place not the same people that we were when we walked in but that through um through drawing close to you we would be transformed in jesus name amen good morning conduit how are you good it's good to see you this morning we're going to be in a uh, section of scripture this morning that's in the Gospels. Uh, in particular, uh, we're going to be in the Gospel of Luke, chapter twenty-four, um, starting at verse thirteen. Um, this is uh, somewhat of a another. It's kind of like a follow-up from uh, Easter Sunday. Last week, Pastor Luke preached on, um, on Thomas, right? And whether you want to continue to refer to him as Doubting Thomas or Realistic Thomas or I just said what everyone else was thinking, Thomas, whatever you want to um, you know remember him as the reality of like how does how does kind of our doubts function in the building of our faith? Um, this week, we're gonna I'm gonna talk about another. Uh, kind of post-resurrection experience, or something that happens after Jesus is resurrected from the grave, but before He ascends into heaven, and um, see what the Lord might be speaking uh, to us in regards to it. Next week, I'll tell you uh, that we're going to be starting a, a whole new, uh, a whole new sermon series uh, called "Teach Us to Pray," uh, where we spend five or six weeks. Uh, hearing from the word about some of the maybe the practical realities of praying try to try to um, dissolve away um, some of the uh, anxieties fears doubts or obstacles that keep us in regular patterns of not praying and uh, ask the spirit of god uh, to help develop in us the discipline of prayer um Thank you, man. Um, because there's here's here's a reality that I that I have always um, seen really at play. Um, how many how many people here uh, believe that the discipline or the practice of prayer um, for those who are pursuing relationship in Jesus is a is a kind of a I guess what you call a core discipline or something that is core. To your relationship with God through Jesus Christ, like I would say, that like almost invariably, everyone is like, "Yes, fully believe that a life of prayer, that a practice of prayer, that a heart and spirit of prayer, that a posture of prayer is important in my relationship with Jesus Christ." Right? So, how many, how many people here would say that they, um, that they, there's a, they, there's a, some inner witness of the Lord's desire to call them into more prayer? or deeper prayer, or more frequent prayer, or more, um, um, or more persistent prayer. Right. So everyone thinks prayer is super important, right? Everyone has a sense of like, man, I need more of it in my life. Right? I need more. Really important, but I, I need more. Uh, I think that's important for everyone to see, everyone else's hands up, because sometimes we we get into a pattern of being like man i am the only one that struggles in my prayer life right i'm the only one that this is difficult for i'm the only one that feels like i i pray for weeks or months or even years and not even sure that the lord is listening right and um and if we can create some community around like that that hey we're not we're not all that different from from one another right even those of us who would express a uh, a deep sense of um of prayer life and those who are you know just beginning to to experience prayer in their walk with jesus so anyway without without preaching that whole sermon series here in the introduction to a, this series uh, <laughs> um, i'll do that i i you know i it's only been a week since i've uh, been up here but i miss i miss seeing your faces from this view i miss um i miss bringing the word to you and so sometimes I get, I get myself a little excited uh, when I get up here and I forget what, what the task for the day is. Um, but uh, suffice it to say, we're going to, we're going to blast off into this uh, post-Easter um, passage of Scripture, which for me has always been, there's always been some confusing elements to this. Um, we're going to talk about uh, the experience of two of Jesus' disciples or followers who while walking on a road to a place called Emmaus had an experience with Jesus after he resurrected from the dead. Um, but for some reason, uh, that experience was not maybe like you and I would imagine it would be if we encountered the resurrection, the resurrected Jesus, right? We're, we are much more mature and our eyes are much more spiritually open than the disciples. So, question of where do we go after Easter uh, is always I think an important one because we build up we build up to the moment of Easter which sits as the apex of Christian faith right and it's kind of the pivot point on all on all of the history of humanity right we we believe that the resurrection of Jesus Christ is the kind of the linchpin of all of all of life right you pull that linchpin off the teeter-totter falls over and nothing makes any more sense. Um, and so, and so it is, it's kind of natural to once you hit the, like, the top of the mountain, right? Once you're at the top, where do you go from there? Well, it feels natural to say that there's only kind of one direction to go when you're at the top, right? You can't go any higher, so you have to go down, right? Um, and that sometimes is emotionally how we feel. Uh, it's going, and so it kind of leaves us in this kind of lurching position, Uh, so where do we go after easter where do we where does our faith take us where does our belief take us Uh, where does the practice of our faith take us when we've um, celebrated that kind of apex moment now um, after easter in all of its practicality you may say well where do i go after easter well i went home i had dinner with my family i had i had a meal we did some kind of family gathering or celebration but obviously that only answers really half the question or even a quarter of the question because it's not It's it's virtually never about what we just physically or actually do um, after the day of Easter. It's also about how how do we, as an Easter or a resurrection people, how do we carry on with the new realities that Easter proclaims into our lives? Uh, How 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 does our... Perspective get changed. How does how does life shift when we believe when we believe by faith in in who Jesus is and what He did on the cross, and then what the Holy Spirit of God did when He resurrected Jesus from the grave? Right. How does all of that reality shape a new direction or a new perspective of our life? Uh, that question. Is uh, maybe sometimes can feel really big, and like not even really sure how to frame that question. But if you think about it in these terms, uh, it maybe will make a little bit more sense about how we process through that. For instance, um, uh, it would be it'll be four years ago this coming October that I lost my mom. I've t- I think I've told that story several times here. Uh, so this coming October will be four years. Since I lost my mom, and what I had often heard other people say um, at the loss of someone so close to them became true for me in those moments: is that after after a really significant loss, someone that's deeply close to you, um, <clears throat> life really is not the same. There's there's a there's a radical shift. That kind of happens in life and that doesn't that's not uh that, that's not necessarily to say that it's a kind of a fatalistic shift where um, life will never be okay or life will never be good or not there will be no joy or no sense of um, purpose or anything like that it's just that when a significant loss happens we're there's something in us that is changed or or reoriented we're faced in a different direction <clears throat> uh, the dynamic or paradigm of reality all just gets shifted just a, a little bit and even though you know for decades before my mom's loss i lived independently i was married i had a family I, you know i, I moved away from co- at college i lived independently even then um even though i lived independently from my mom for for decades before her her death, there was still what shifted for me in that moment was that like almost immediately um, when I lost my mom, there was this sense of like where I had lost some um, really hard to define or grasp onto sense of like protection or covering in life. Like there was this sense where like I'm vulnerable now. My mom's not here. Right, that like there's, there, I I don't have that person that has always been there to like love and protect and nurture and care for. That's not there anymore. So I feel a little exposed to the vulnerabilities of of life. So life life changed and life shifted. Things are just were just different. Right, and so if you think about if you can think about it and you have that experience yourself and you understand how things. Um, maybe have shifted in your life at the loss of someone you you may be able to grasp onto what we're talking about when we say that where do we go after easter what are the new realities what are the new paradigms what are the new truths that come after easter and and that require of us or demand of us or even just kind of foist upon us the necessity of of seeing the world around us differently how must easter change who we are and what we see and what we believe if we have if we if we honestly are reaching for it and grasping it by faith if we're honestly like if we're honestly expressing faith in the resurrected jesus how must that change who we are, what we believe, and what we do post Easter. And the story that we're going to read this morning in the Gospel of Luke records um, two men um, who found themselves in a bit of, call it like, emotional reeling after everything that had um, after everything that had happened in Jerusalem. So. Uh, if you have your Bible, you can uh, follow along with me in Luke chapter 24, starting at verse 13. We're going to read this whole section here. Now that same day, this, and that same day is the, the day that they had recognized that the tomb was empty, One of them, named Cleopas, asked him, Are you only a visitor to Jerusalem and do not know the things that have happened there in these days? What things? he asked. About Jesus of Nazareth, they replied. He was a prophet, powerful in word and deed before God and all the people. The chief priests and our rulers handed him over to be sentenced to death, and they crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one who was going to redeem Israel. How foolish are you? How slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Did not the Christ have to suffer these things and enter his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them what was said in all of the scriptures concerning himself. As they approached the village to which they were going, Jesus acted as if he were going farther, but they urged him strongly, Stay with us, for it is nearly evening. The day is almost over. And so he went in to stay with them. And when he was at the table with them, he took bread, gave thanks, broke it, and began to give it to them. Then their eyes were opened, and they recognized him, and he disappeared from their sight. They asked each other, were not our hearts burning within us while he talked with us on the road and opened the Scriptures to us? They got up and returned at once to Jerusalem. There they found the eleven and those with them, assembled together and saying, it is true, the Lord has risen and appeared to Simon. Then the two told what had happened on the way and how Jesus was recognized by them when He broke the bread. So we have this account of, of two of the followers of Jesus um, walking to this small village saying that they were, they were talking about everything that had happened in everything that had happened around them. What was, what was going on? I imagine that they were likely recalling the details of all, uh, all, all of what had gone on between Jesus' entry into the into the city on Palm Sunday, um, to the supper that he shared with his disciples and the washing of their feet, to his uh, betrayal by Judas and then the arrest. Uh, to then jesus death and now to this kind of gut-wrenching mystery of where jesus was because hey we went and saw the tomb and it was empty and as they were having this conversation walking along the road feeling like well what has happened what's going on can you believe this story we don't get any of it Um, as they were having that conversation luke says that that jesus himself um, walked up and was walking alongside of them but they did not know that it was him it's an interesting it's it's an interesting dynamic here because not only does the word say that they did not know that it was jesus but that they were kept from recognizing jesus that there was this, that there was this um, active there was this active way in which their eyes were kept with like scales on them so that they were they could not recognize that it was Jesus that was walking alongside of them and, and so Jesus comes up to them with kind of like this, "Hey guys, uh, hey, what you talking about? what's going on what's?" What's, ha- what's the haps? I don't know what kids say these days. Um, not, that. not that. Someone needs to prepare for me like a dictionary of common words and phrases, okay? What's the haps? Um, what's the haps, guys? Um, now, <laughs> now, now Luke, Luke tells us here that, uh, how they were feeling and the tone of the conversation. So you get a sense of kind of like the tone of the conversation. He says um, that, the, that they stood still and their faces were downcast when Jesus asked the question. So they were walking along. Hey, what's going on? What's happening? They stood still and their faces were downcast. The, the tone was not good the the demeanor was not good the the conversation it was not full of light it was not full of hope it was not full of the promise of resurrection being fulfilled it was not full of excitement and expectation it was full of like pain and confusion and it was full of 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 sadness they were sad and so they said to Him, Hey man, don't you know? Don't you know what has happened? And then they proceeded to tell Jesus <laughs> everything that had happened to Him. In their own way, of course. And after giving an account of all of the events that happened, well, He was, he was, you know... Um, about Jesus of Nazareth, their reply starts in verse 19, right? He was a prophet, powerful in word and deed before God and all the people. They're revealing their own bias about who they thought God was or who Jesus was here, right? Never did they say, well, He was the Christ. He was the Son of God. He was the Messiah. He was the one that had been promised, that the Scriptures had proclaimed, that the prophets had talked about, that the law of Moses revealed. Like, He was, he was the guy, right now they were it was the way they explained what had happened was betraying their inner sense of faith or apprehension of who jesus was even it's maybe an interesting point to, to listen to the way that we describe who jesus is when we talk about jesus it it will give us maybe some insight into who we believe and who we view jesus to be um that's besides the point but they tell, they tell Jesus everything that had happened. He was powerful before God and all the people. Chief priests and our rulers handed Him over to be sentenced to death, death. They crucified Him. We had hoped He was the one who was going to redeem Israel. And what is more, it's now the third day since all this happened and the tomb is empty. And so after giving their account of all of the events and everything that had happened, Jesus kind of like dropped this on them. In chapter 24, verses 26 and 27, in a way, he says, So, what you're saying to me is this that everything that the scriptures said would happen to the Messiah happened? Did not the Christ have to suffer these things and then enter his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them what was said in all of the scriptures concerning himself. So he's like, "Okay, I'm hearing you guys. Yeah, I am picking up what you are putting down. And so what you're telling me is that everything that everything that we believe as members of you know God's chosen people, His nation. Et- so it all happened then. It all came true. Like it, it all happened." And, And there's like this no, almost like this silence of response, kind of like drops, it doesn't take it any further, kind of just lets that sit there. It says later on, um, uh, later that evening, the three of them sat down to share a meal with one another. You know, they had... Jesus was going to go on. They had convinced him to stay. This was was very normal in ancient Near Eastern hospitality you know, to allow even strangers to stay in your home and to give them a meal um, at night when they were traveling. This is not odd. The three of them sat down to share a meal with one another. And Luke records in chapter 24, verse 31, that it was then as Jesus broke the bread with them and, and gave them food that their eyes were opened And they recognized Him. That their eyes were opened in that moment. That whatever scales were on their eyes as they were walking down the road were removed and they were were given the ability so it seems at least to see Jesus for who He really was. And then He disappeared. Gone. And as they're recalling the events of that day and what would happen they they said were not our hearts burning within us as we were walking on the road and he was opening the scriptures up to us it was kind of like another way of saying that them saying like oh my gosh if it was a snake it would have bit us you know the resurrected jesus could not have been any closer he was right here opening the truth of God's word in his glorified and resurrected form. And we did not, were not our hearts burning in us as he opened the word to us? Can you imagine just the sense of like, Cameron, what are you doing? You idiot! What a wasted opportunity! I think that there are some really important features to this story that can and are uh, can be and are pertinent to our lives as people who live in the light of life that Easter casts on everything. right? We don't live in the shadow of Easter as Christians, right? We live in the light of what Easter illuminates for us. Like Easter is a Easter is a lighthouse, right It's a lighthouse that that, that illuminates the, the dark areas around us and allows us to see things in a much different way, in a much different reality with a much different purpose. These two phrases that we you see both uh, 24 verse 16, and and verse 31 were kind of strange to me, to be honest. Still a little bit strange for me. I don't don't pretend to have full understanding of them, but um, I've always been struck by the two verses here that essentially um, communicated that the eyes of the men on the road that day were um, purposely veiled so that they did not recognize Jesus as they were walking down the road. Both in Luke chapter twenty four verse sixteen, of course, but they were kept from recognizing him. We it's kind of re it's kind of reiterated um, later in the chapter in verse thirty one when it says that their eyes were then opened. Right? Not they opened their eyes and finally came to their senses, but that there was a moment where what was what was a veil over their eyes was removed so that they could recognize jesus for who he really was i have tended to approach this story with a little bit of confusion over why it seems like the men didn't just not recognize jesus like oh Yeah, sorry, it's been a while, like three days, and didn't recognize who you were. It's not that they just didn't recognize Jesus, but they were kept in some sort of like supernatural way from recognizing who it was that they were talking about on the road. The same seems true if you think back on it into the accounts of the Gospels where Mary went to the tomb on that morning found the tomb to be empty, but spoke with a man at the tomb that she thought was the gardener. Saying, where have you put him? Or where have they put him? Tell me and I will go and I will get him. There was this almost like sense of um, unrecognizable qualities about Jesus for The two men on the road to Emmaus, Mary at the empty tomb. That is a little bit mysterious. Like what about that would have been so confusing? There was an unfamiliarity about Jesus to the men walking to Emmaus and to Mary that doesn't make a whole lot of sense on the surface. But if we begin to dig a little bit deeper into what happened really on Easter what was really happening there in our own hearts, I think it, at least that makes a little bit more sense for me. If I think about what, for instance, Mary, um, either what or who did she go to the tomb uh, expecting to find on Easter Sunday on that, on that morning? We talked a little bit about this at our, uh, at our uh, Easter Sunday service, but it's really clear that Mary went to the tomb on Easter Sunday not to wait for Jesus to march miraculously and gloriously out as a as a resurrected Lord and Christ, but that Mary went to the tomb that day expecting to find that Jesus would still be very, very dead. And that and that she was going in order to um, continue kind of a Jewish burial rite, which allowed her to anoint um, Jesus' body with spices and oils as a way of honoring, um, honoring your loved one. It's very clear that Mary had no conception whatsoever that when she got there, that the tomb would be empty and that the reason the tomb would be empty was because Jesus was resurrected from the grave through the power of the Holy Spirit just as he had promised he would, and just as Moses, and just as the prophets, and just as the writings had said. She didn't go to find a risen Lord. She went to find a dead teacher. And what were the men talking about that day on the road to Emmaus? They were not talking about the glory of the resurrection and the joy of Jesus' life and and what must be coming next now that everything that Jesus had said was coming to fruition, right? By their very own admission, they were talking about all of their dashed hopes and missed expectations regarding Jesus. By their own admission. Verse 21, right? We had hoped that he was the one who was going to redeem Israel. Listen, we had plans for Jesus. We had hopes for Jesus. We had expectations that Jesus was going to be the one that was going to bring redemption to the nation and the people of Israel who have for centuries and centuries and centuries and centuries centuries been Under the yoke of slavery, from this people group to that people group to that people group. Finally, the Messiah is here and we are going to be redeemed. We had hoped that that's who Jesus was going to be, but he died. He suffered the same fate that every other false Messiah was to suffer. He was killed. Their expectations. The expectations of Mary were dashed in the empty tomb. The expectations of the um, guys on the road to Emmaus were dashed by the empty tomb. I think there's one main reality that is working here, both in both of those scenarios, and I think that is really evident um, when you when you see what's going on here and it's this is that when when you and i when we decide in our own minds how god must work we become blind to how god is working when we decide this is how god must work this is my hopes these are my expectations. These are the things that I expect to see. These are the things that I expect to experience. Here is the direction that this is going to go. Right? When we, when we get into this place of saying, this is how God must work in order to show up big in my life. And we get so... Uh, I say this to my, to my uh, students, my jiu students, when they just keep doing something... Wrong, a hundred times over, and suffer the consequences on the mats for doing it. It's like, listen, you gotta. Sometimes we get stuck on the setting of stupid, right? And and we need reset a little bit. And sometimes we get stuck on the setting of God. I need you to be this. I need you to do this. This is how you must show up in my life. This is what you must accomplish. We get so stuck on that setting that we actually miss or are unable to spiritually and physically see the ways that he actually is showing up and actually is working. It's not that the men on the road to Emmaus were incapable of physically seeing. It's that they refused to see what God had done because they were fixated on what they wanted God to do. We wanted God to use Jesus to redeem Israel. They were so fixated in their grief on what they wanted God to do that they were blind to what god was doing and even when listen even when there was evidence of what god had done some of the women they reported that the tomb was empty they allowed a spiritual blindness to cover their eyes from the miracle of resurrection and what actually happened was that they allowed their expectations of who Jesus should be to inform and drive their faith. We have this expectation of who Jesus should be, of how he should show up, of what he should do in my life. So now I'm going to allow my expectations of who Jesus should be to drive my faith in all of the things that God does and doesn't do. Well, God can't do that. God won't do that. God won't show up like that because I'm expecting Him to do this over here. My expectations inform my faith. But listen, what would have been different for them and what would be different for us, for you and I, if instead of allowing our expectations of how God can or will work, or, or uh, instead of allowing our expectations to inform how we believe, if we let our faith, our firm, solidified standing on the truth and promise of the glory of the resurrection, what if we allowed our faith then to inform our continual expectation of God's miracle working power in our lives? That because the resurrection occurred and I stand firmly in faith and belief in that miracle, right? Then I am standing now in the expectation that the same faith it takes to believe that will be the same faith by which I walk my entire life. As if we can, As if we can reasonably or logically say, I believe in the miracle working power of the resurrection... But I'm not so sure that I believe that God can do a miracle in me. Or God can do a miracle in my family. Or God can do a miracle in my health. Or God can do a miracle here. Or God can do a miracle there, there, or there, or there, or there. We allow our expectations. God doesn't work miracles like that anymore. To inform our faith. Rather than being like, hey, Jesus was was resurrected from the grave. And I believe that and I'm staking all of my life upon it. And so because I firmly believe that, listen, all of my expectations now are going to be informed by the reality that I serve a miracle-working God. Our faith must always inform our expectations, not the other way around. They saw only what was in front of them and had no concept whatsoever of the ways that God was breaking through their expectations to do something that was completely supernatural in their midst. I think it's a fairly safe um, statement to say that we generally live in a culture of anti-supernaturalism. We generally live in a world, in a culture that is like, ah, uh, yeah, the supernatural, I don't believe in all that hocus-pocus kind of stuff, right? All that stuff you can't explain, yeah, I don't really, like, we've evolved quite a bit, right? Right? We're I mean we're pretty spiritually woke people. We 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 get it, okay. Yeah. Miracles for were the ancients that didn't understand how everything actually works. We have become enlightened through our own education, right? To understand that there is really just a logical reason or expression for just about everything that happens. Listen, that is a disease. That is a disease. That is a virus of the enemy, right? I was gonna, like it is. We we should be the most pro supernatural people in all of existence. We we our entire faith is built on the most extreme miracle that you could ever imagine. Our entire faith. And so by extension, our entire lives are built is built around the most supernatural thing that you could possibly ever believe. We live in a culture of anti-supernaturalism where not much different than the men on the road, we have by and large become blind to the miracles of God that happen all around this around us but the blindness listen is is mostly of our own doing we are kept from seeing as the men were not because god is unwilling to allow us to witness but because our faith has not operated in a place of expectation that god will do a miracle we don't we don't see the miracle anymore we don't see him walking alongside of us because we operate in a place of God doesn't do miracles anymore instead of operating in a place of faith that says God is doing miracles all over the place every day both in me and around me in the world and in that person's life and in that person's life I believe it and I stand with it and we have we have good reason to believe this, right? Even in the Gospels, for instance, Matthew chapter 13, verse 58, is that Jesus had to leave his hometown and what? Couldn't do, could do no more miracles there. Why? Because the people lacked the faith. Not that Jesus lacked the willingness to do miracles, but that those witnessing the miracles, seeing the miracles... Experiencing the miracles, lacked the faith to see them. Jesus left and was like, I can do no more miracles here because of their lack of faith. Church, let us not be a place where Jesus is like, I can't do any more miracles here because of the lack of faith. What is a miracle? A miracle is a supernatural intervention by God that defies the observable laws of nature. That's a real clinical definition. Right? I don't know a greater one, though. I don't know, I don't know a better one or a more clear one. It's, I, it's theologically accurate and concise and precise. A miracle is... A supernatural intervention by God that defies the observable laws of nature. Now, the Bible is full of miracles. What are some? What are some of our favorites? Some of your favorite miracles? Just go ahead and yell them out. The Red, Red Sea, water into wine, the feeding of the five thousand. Yeah, I mean, like these are great ones, right? Lazarus. Lazarus. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Miracle, 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 miracle. Like and. And what do we see? Like, a big splash, right? Someone being raised from the dead. Canisters full of water, you dip it it out. And like, what what if Vinny went to go pour my water and it was, you know, Pinot Grigio? Like, what? (laughs) None of us here would be like, oh, I can explain how that happened, right? No, it'd be like, it's a miracle. The parting of the Red Sea the whole nation of israel coming out of egypt and walking down in the middle we get these big pictures in our mind right right you know the jesus storybook bible these huge walls of water as big as the eye can see and these people walking down in the middle of the ocean and they crashing back down over the egyptians as they come it's like yes this is the stuff of miracles that's what i'm talking about lord that's what i'm talking about what are some of the miracles that we see today Life, right? I would say that life is a miracle, right? Because when we see, when we talk about miracles, we, we think of the Red Sea, the feeding of the 5,000, um, the raising of Lazarus, water to wine. Like we think about these things that are really big and huge. We often proclaim that we no longer see miracles anymore. Like, wow, well, we just, wouldn't it just be great if we just got back to the time and place where God was doing miracles Supposing that miracles occur only in a grand, viewable scale, right? They only occur in the realm of parting huge oceans or turning water into wine. But I think something equally as grand goes on in the world of supernatural, godly intervention. Because like we've been saying throughout the whole Easter series, the whole Lenten series, we are an Easter people. And to say that we are an Easter people is the same thing as to say we are a resurrection people. And to say that we are an Easter people and that we are a resurrection people is the same thing as to say we are a miracle people. We are a miracle people just like we are a resurrection people. If we are a resurrection people we must be a miracle people. Coming back to life. Coming back to life when you are dead three days in a grave defies the observable laws of nature and was only made possible by the intervention of the Holy Spirit that brought Jesus back to life. That the resurrection of Jesus Christ, right? that upon which we build our entire lives is the picture-perfect example of miracle. We cannot be a resurrection people without being a miracle people. You can't do it. Okay, pastor, yeah, I get that. Yep, But I've never seen a miracle. And um, I've been following Jesus for all of my life. Um, I have what I think is a pretty robust faith. Um, God is continuing to grow my faith, so why am I not seeing or experiencing anything miraculous in my life? We could have a few, could have a few explanations for that. Um, I certainly think like the men on the road to Emmaus and like Mary... In the tomb, that there is something to say about um, the uh, the depth of faith and expectation in the miracle-working power of God. Okay. Um, but in, instead of so, there's something to say there. We're not going to say too much about that. More about that, because I want to focus on some things over here for right now so know that there is some stuff over here but we're going to talk about what's over here remember our definition of what a miracle is a miracle is again a supernatural so it does not occur in nature a supernatural intervention of God that defies the laws of nature that's maybe a kind of a um, like a double positive am saying the same thing twice there Um, when we are united uh, with Jesus by faith, we become miracles, and the way that we show up in the world produces the miraculous every day. Um, I don't know about you, but it feels really, really natural for me to hate my enemies. The people that seek to do me harm, uh, the, people that, uh, the people that don't like me, the people that cause pain in my life, it's really, it's like I don't even have to try to not like them. It just happens pretty naturally, right? It's like this, it's a switch, right? It's really, really natural for me to hate my enemies, it is an absolute miracle when by the grace of God and the presence of the Holy Spirit in me, I choose to love them instead. It is supernatural. It, it, or it is, it is very, very natural for me to hold on to bitterness and anger towards the people that have hurt me. I can access bitterness and anger towards people who have done things to me that have been hurtful and harmful, like it's just like that. It's natural, right? It is easy. Very, very easy. It is a miracle when I choose to lay aside offense and extend and express forgiveness to them just as how God in Jesus Christ has laid aside offense and extended forgiveness to me. In the same measure that forgiveness has been extended to me by God through Jesus, by the grace of God, I am able to extend forgiveness to those who have hurt me. That is a miracle because naturally in myself I only want to hold on to bitterness and anger it's pretty natural for me for most of us I think to hoard our resources to ensure that we have what we need to hoard it all to keep it to hold tight It's a miracle when we choose to give generously even out of our place of poverty. That's a miracle. Doesn't natu- that doesn't naturally happen. It's natural to fight back verbally when someone tries to tear down our character or someone that we love. It's a miracle when we like the heart and posture and spirit of Jesus. Um, Do one of these things. It's a miracle when we hold our tongue and let the God of justice do the fighting for us. It's natural to promote ourselves to step on others as we climb a proverbial ladder looking out for number one in every opportunity that we have. That's very natural, right? I'm going to promote myself I'm gonna step on others. I'm going to look out for number one. Very natural thing to do. It's a miracle when we take a position of posture or a position and posture of humility uh, and service. Where we allow ourselves even to be stepped on so that Christ's name will not be put to shame. All of these things are natural for the life of sin, and death. To hate our enemies. To hold on to bitterness and unforgiveness. To hoard our resources. To bite and devour those with our words. To look out for number one and to get ahead. To climb the ladder. But it is is a supernatural, miraculous intervention of the Spirit of God in our life when when we respond to the natural inclinations of our heart which produce sin and death when we respond in the heart and spirit of Christ, which shows that we are a people who have been set free from slavery to sin and death and have been released to righteousness, holiness, and life in Jesus Christ. Paul describes it very, very succinctly, but also very briefly in. Um, in Romans chapter six, verse seventeen through nineteen, he says, But thanks be to God that though you used to be slaves to sin, right? Living in your natural self, I am a slave to the natural inclination of Of wanting to hold on to anger and bitterness, of hating my enemy, of hoarding my resources, of biting and devouring, of climbing the ladder while stepping on others. I am a slave to that. While though you used to be slaves to that, you wholeheartedly, you've wholeheartedly obeyed the form of teaching to which you were entrusted, and you have been set free from sin. And now you have become a slave, not to the natural inclinations of your heart, you have become a slave to righteousness. He says, I put this in human terms because you're weak in your natural selves. Amen, Paul. Weak in my natural self. Just as you used to offer the parts of your body in slavery to impurity and ever-increasing wickedness, so now offer them in slavery to righteousness leading to holiness. The way that Easter reshapes and reshifts right our perspective, right? Is it, is it moves us from a place of slavery to our natural selves and allows us the freedom to walk as resurrected, miracle people, being now slaves to righteousness, which leads to holiness, and the death of all that is naturally wicked in us. Amen. Thank you, Jesus. Jesus. That everything that was natural is natural about me has been left in the tomb. And now the only thing that comes out is the resurrected glory of Jesus Christ and by uniting with Jesus in faith, I am now no longer a slave and bound by chains to the things that were put to death in the tomb, but now I can walk in the newness of holiness and the righteousness of Jesus offered to me. as a resurrection people we live and move and have our being in the realm of acting supernaturally in every situation because we have been set free from the law of sin that makes us want to act naturally all the time and we have been we have been set free towards living in holiness and righteousness one of the Um, one of the things as we're moving into this prayer series in the next couple of weeks, I think it's going to be about five or six weeks long. um, One of the things that I specifically am going to be praying for myself personally, right? And also corporately for us as a church is is that the Lord would by His grace Expand my faith so that I could see clearly and not be kept from seeing, as the men in Emmaus were, that I could see clearly the miracles that he was doing all around us. Parallel to that is that I would see clearly the miracles that God wants to do and that we are to be praying in accordance with faith towards seeing accomplished. And I'll have you. We'll, we'll be talking about all that, and have you join me in those prayers. Of course, we all join together in one prayer as a as a community of faith. But I'm going to leave you. Um, I want to leave you with this prayer. To I really appreciated how pastor luke gave us something a a very simple prayer to walk away with um, last week and to pray uh to pray regularly and daily um, as we're um as we're continuing to wrestle with and contemplate these things in our hearts and so i wanted to offer something similar uh to us or for us this morning as we as we get ready to close okay So uh, I don't know if you you want to take a picture or we'll throw it up on a slide later on social media or something like this. Um, But it's this prayer. Heavenly Father, we believe that you still do miracles. Help us in our unbelief and create in us the faith to see you working in the world. I believe that Jesus still does miracles. I believe that we serve a God that um, does nothing but miracles, really. I am asking the Lord to give me the faith to believe that miracles are still happening all around me. Giving me the faith to see them and create in me the faith to see miracles continue to happen in the world. Let's pray in that direction right now as the worship team comes back up. Um, Heavenly Father, we... Father, you, Father, thank You for not requiring perfect faith. Lord, I'm encouraged by the words of Scripture that describe um, a faith that moves mountains as being about the side of a mustard seed. Because sometimes, Lord, I feel like I have even less of a mustard seed size of faith. And I feel like what you want me to have is a mountain of faith. Lord, you are so gentle and kind. You see us for who we are. Lord, but you don't desire for us to stay who we are. Lord, leaving behind what... What is natural? What is our maybe our natural inclinations or decisions or thoughts or words? Father, you uh, through Jesus Christ call us into a place of supernatural faith. Lord, I pray um, that you would build our faith, grow our faith expand our faith that we might be a people here um, that walk in the reality of miracles happening all around us about you Lord Lord I have faith to believe that you break into your world all you break into this creation all of the time you intervene in so many miraculous ways Father forgive me for my lack of faith that I have not seen. Lord, thank You for the miracle of Jesus resurrected from the grave. Lord, may that be the miracle that defines all other things in my life. In Jesus' name, Amen. Hear about the miracle of grace. But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, has made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace that you have been saved. And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus, in order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. For it is by grace that you have been saved through faith. This is not of yourself. It is a gift of God so that no one can boast. For we are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. It is by grace through faith in Jesus Christ that you have been saved. Go and be a miracle uh, living people, a resurrection people through faith in Jesus Christ. Amen. You are loved. Have a great week.